Welcome to Those Hard Conversations. A platform dedicated to discussing solutions to the issues facing our most vulnerable and marginalized communities. We use a harm reduction approach to explore practical strategies for positive change in communities facing undeniable challenges. Hello, everyone, and welcome to those hard conversations. I'm one of your hosts, Elvis Rosado. And I'm one of your hosts, Clayton Rooley. And today we're going to have a conversation on harm reduction. Clayton, what does that mean to you? Well, I think harm reduction, I mean, first off, I mean, knowing you, I would say that both of us would consider ourselves harm reductionists. Um, Yes. But I think harm reduction is basically just trying to meet the needs of the people not based on any sort of uh, moralistic view besides a moralistic view of, uh, you know, we know that a lot of people are going through a lot of things. And so we do things to help people in the best way possible, um, even if it's not sexy at the time, even if it's not, uh, you know, legal at the time. um, We know that it's going to, you know, provide help for folks in need. Yes. What about you, Elvis? Well, I mean, I I love the fact that it's actually a broad term, even though a lot of times we find that, you know, it's become to where a lot of people associate harm reduction with just uh, drug related or drug use. And the reality is, is that harm reduction covers a huge variety of topics and, and life situations, you know, so. But but I agree. For me, I think harm reduction is just what it says. Yeah. Regardless of where we're at, um, reducing, the, learning how to reduce harm in that particular situation. So. Yeah, and I think it's something that we do all the time in life. You know, I think harm reduction is a form of risk reduction. All of us practice, you know, harm reduction and risk reduction in our lives. Uh, you know, in many ways, some of which we're going to get to later on in this show and in other shows as we move forward. Um, You know, I can tell you what the definition of harm reduction from the international harm reduction, uh, you know, community is uh, going off of their website. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. First off, it says there's no universally accepted definition of harm reduction, but the below lays out harm reduction international's position on the issue based on our years of work on drug use, public health, and human rights, and incorporates views shared by our partner organizations. Then it moves into harm reduction, refers to policies, programs, and practices that aim to minimize negative health and social legal impacts associated with drug use, drug policies, and drug laws. Harm reduction is grounded in justice and human rights. It focuses on positive change and on working with people without judgment, coercion, discrimination, or requiring that they stop using drugs as a precondition of support. Harm reduction encompasses a range of health and social services and practices that apply to illicit and licit drugs. These include, but are not limited to, drug consumption rooms, syringes, needle programs, non-abstinence-based housing and employment initiatives, 
drug checking, overdose prevention and reversal, psychosocial support, and provision of information on safer drug use. Approaches such as these are cost-effective, evidence-based, and have a positive impact on individuals and community health. All right? Yep. You th- and then, what- you know, when we when we think about it and when we look at it, you know, that that's that's speaking from a from a, a drug use perspective. But it applies also in other situations, such as, you know, cancer, when you're talking about diabetes or, you know, when you're talking about um, obesity and, and, and other, other, walk, other situations in life where people learn, we, we teach people or we try to, to help people to understand that if they change this behavior or if they modify a behavior, it minimizes risk or minimizes, you know, harm in on in their life. And For promotes instance, changing, health. Yes, and promotes health. And the promotion of health also promotes um, quality of life. And, you know, in, in a situation where we're in a country where not only do we consume 95% of the world's opiates, but we have some of the worst eating habits in, in, the, in the world as well, you know, if you change, if you promote health, better health, and you produce better quality of life, the the funding changes, the direction of the funding changes to where it can be utilized in other places, just by people learning how to, you know, change the way we live or change their behaviors. Totally agree, and I think it's very interesting that, in so many other ways, we uh, don't see harm reduction or risk reduction as a negative. But when you're talking about people that use drugs or do sex work or um, other risky behaviors, all of a sudden it's a negative to promote harm reduction. I think it's important and one of the things that we'll try to do in general uh, throughout this podcast is try to bring context to uh, harm reduction and risk reduction and how basically this is just another branch on a tree. Um, this is nothing new, as you mentioned earlier. It's not just around, uh, you know, drugs and sex work and, and you know, everything that we speak about as far as this quote unquote harm reduction. Uh, it is about how we treat people with chronic medical conditions. It is about how we should be treating, although I don't say it's happening as much, how we treat people who are living without as far as like living in poverty. Um it is how we should treat folks in neighborhoods. It is how we do treat, you know, uh, you know, children in, in all walks or most walks of life. Um, there's a cushion that I think we are very quick to extend to certain groups of folks um, or certain people based on race and class uh, that we just don't seem to do with everyone. And I think the wellness of everyone is therefore, you know, brought down. And I think we have to get to a place where we realize that we have to be each other's keeper. Um, And if we can do that by being preventative um, and educating folks, uh, despite what they're going to continue to do on how to do things as safely as possible and the benefits of that, uh, we need to do that a lot more often than we have as a society. And I, and I agree. And I mean, I think that, you know, for, for the sake of our listeners, you know, just small examples. I mean, for instance, you know, it's freezing, it's below zero out. 
part of that harm reduction is reminding people, listen, you, you might want to put on some gloves. You might want to put on a hat. You know, it's that situation of right now with this whole pandemic, the issue of masks. It is definitely harm reduction when you're teaching, you know, reminding people, listen, just you wearing a mask, the mask prevents the spread of this, this thing that has literally shut the world down. Right. You know, um, I got one. Uh, I got go one. Um, you know, at one point with cars, uh, you know, it was not uh, illegal for you to drive in a car either as a driver or a passenger without seatbelts. And then they recognized mm -hmm. that people were getting into accidents and dying or getting, you know, injured at high rates. And so there was a movement towards them implementing that seatbelts not only be in cars, but actually be mandated to wear when you're operating or, you know, driving in a car. And a for first, initially, there was major pushback, you know, from the art the the automobile manufacturers and then at the at-large community um, just because folks felt like they were being forced to, you know, not, you know, drive free. And, and ha you know, of course, the manufacturers meant that was one more thing or four more things or five more things they had to put into their car. But be for the sake of public health and the sake of making sure that people were protected, uh, when operating, it got made first to be in cars in general uh, and then to be mandated around use. And although we know everyone yeah. still doesn't you know, wear seatbelts every time they drive, we know that there is no reason why they can't wear a seatbelt. And we know that there is information and education on the, the positives of wearing seatbelts and how seatbelts definitely work to save lives. So that's definitely another example of what we're talking about. That is risk reduction and that's a form of harm reduction. Yeah. And it's something that, I mean, uh, I, you know, I agree with you. It's, it's come a long way and it's still, I mean, you, you still have school buses that don't have them and that's a push for it now to, you know, protect those children. Um, and along those lines, you know, let's, let's look at before we move on to, to, you know, to more, um, intense related to what we normally do but even sunscreen like you know it was deemed that exposure to the sun without any type of protection could lead to skin cancer or could lead to problems so they developed um sunblock and sunscreens and they tell people you know put it on and blah 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 and, it, and it's it's all about you know reducing reducing the the harm regardless of what the situation is I just like we were talking earlier and what like like Clayton said, we will, you know, like you were saying, we will talk later on um, in more depth about this. But it it's the same thing it, that there's a uh, there's a double standard when it comes to 90 percent of health issues and harm reduction and risk reduction along those lines. And then when it comes to the population that we serve, when we're talking about people who abuse substances or who live uh, what some people tend to call a self-destructive lifestyle. Use substances. You know? Yeah, use substances. Yes. Um, you know, you know, we don't tell the person who wants to go out in the sun that they can't go out in the sun. And if they go out in the sun, then, you know, if they get cancer, you know, it's their fault. They're on their own. They're on their own yeah. and there's nothing we can do with, you know, for them. We don't say that on the individual level. We don't say we're going to not treat people. We're not going to pay for their treatment. 
because uh, they got, you know, skin cancer because they should have known that when they went out in the sun, they were going to get skin cancer and we're not going to provide you with any sort of uh, assistance and you going out in the sun. No, we say, hey, we know that there's something that can help you avoid catching you know, cancer via the sun. It's called sunblock. It's called sunscreen. We strongly suggest that you use, you know, the sunscreen and sunblock, sunblock when you go out regularly, you know, to help with that. And hey, we know you you still may not use it all the time and you still might contract cancer, you know, even if you use it and certainly if you don't use it, but we're not going to deny access to treatment services around your cancer because you didn't do everything how we wanted you to do it, where we wanted you to do it, when we wanted you to do it, and, and, and you know, like we want you to do it. Uh, and I think that I mean, harm reduction is a major, you know, just a continuation of that. Go ahead, Elvis. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's the same, you know, the same context with pretty much other behaviors, but, you know, one that, that sticks out for me is like, let's say, for instance, smoking. You have people who smoke and... and develop you know complications breathing or they develop lung cancer or all these other difficulties and you know no one says because you chose to smoke cigarettes we're not going to treat you you know it's interesting my father died of of lung cancer emphysema and whatnot he was down a half a lung and i remember going to see him at the hospital and the nurse says to me are you going to be here for a little while and i was like yes yeah. she said no i'm going to step out i'm going to have go have a cigarette and I said to her, I said, wow, you working with people in these conditions because of their smoking and you're going out to smoke. And she goes, I just can't help it. I, I enjoy my cigarettes. You know, so this is a situation where even even amongst the professionals themselves, they understand the risk factors and the dangers of smoking, but yet still do it. And nobody says to them, well, you knew you worked with these individuals. You saw the outcome and you still chose to do it we're not going to treat you, you know? And I think that ironically enough, there is, you know, there is uh, um, smoking cessation programs and there's things put into place for you to quit and they'll help you. But when it comes to the population that we serve, when it comes to people that are on the street and are homeless and are using, even the act of harm reduction towards them is frowned upon. And it's like, why are you helping those people? They did that to themselves. Why are you doing this? You know, and I think that even within the, the realm of, of harm reduction, educating somebody about like what we're trying to do right now, educating people about what is harm reduction, you know, what it is, is a form of harm reduction. Because if you teach somebody the importance of being able to offer these services to people, they might in turn decide to apply them themselves or see that, you know what, this is beneficial to those people, to those individuals and not frown upon it and, and, and accept it, accept the help, you know, accept helping people just like we do with everything else. Yeah. I think it's such a big deal to outreach to those who aren't necessarily either in the field of harm reduction or even public health and social services and remind folks that we're more closely related than we are, you know, uh, different than each other. Um, and it should not have to take someone being personally affected uh, by disease or by overdose or by 
someone actively using in their household or in their life to understand that it's really about treating people with dignity and respect and allowing for self-determination and self-empowerment, even though it can be very difficult to see and deal with. Um, you know, we're fortunate that, you know, for the most part, although there's a lot of changes that need to be made, we don't live in a country that uh, is saying that you have to do this the way that we say do this and do it now or else we're going to pull you outside and shoot you in the head or, you know, take you to a camp and, and you know, force you to, you know, do all of our bidding, all of our, you know, declarations. Um, you know, there's freedom here. And sometimes freedom is a very challenging thing to accept as an individual and accept as a group. But we do have to accept that folks have the right to do things, even if we know that they're harmful. But it doesn't mean that we stop trying to help people. It doesn't mean that we don't provide services and individuals for them to deal with so that they can make that determination when they're ready uh, that they want more help. And more help looks different. I mean, more help looks for some people like they're ready to start abstaining from, you know, doing, you know, hard drugs. It it might mean that they slow down. Um, It might mean that they continue forever. But now they're doing it with, you know, the, the, the tools to do it as safely as they can possibly do it. And we know not only for that individual is it beneficial for them to do that, but it's also beneficial to us around. Uh, it means less lives lost. It means less livelihoods that are, you know, changed by disease, um, changed by lack of access. And, you know, financially to all of us, it can mean saving us millions of dollars uh, hand to fist by being preventative instead of being reactive. Um, yeah. Going back to our so let's- going back to our list, like. Imagine if we said, oh, we have stoves and houses, but the only way that you can get something out of a hot stove is to burn your hands every time you go into a stove. Like imagine like a how many people would be cooking in hot stoves and b if they did what they would do have to do after they cooked a uh, you know, a hot meal. They'd have to go to the hospital or treat their own burn wounds. So what did someone decide to do in the past that is obviously a pillar of risk reduction and, and, you know, therefore a part of harm reduction. They said, oh, here are these, you know, heavy duty cloth, typically materials that you can use either putting on your actual hand themselves or just, you know, having a part of them on your hand area. And when you go into a stove, you use those and you pull out the pot, you pull out the pan. They're called, you know, a pan uh, pot holders. Um, that's a form of harm reduction. That's a form of risk reduction. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, think about that. I mean, at some point, somebody in, 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 in I guess I would say caveman days when they finally started using fire, oh, oh, oh. they didn't have access to that. And they probably did put meat in the thing and somebody stuck their hand in there and was like, oh, crap, this is hot. And, you know, conversations changed. But even here, let's 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 look at um, let's take a look at this. Um, how does MAT, how does medically assisted treatment play a part in harm reduction, right? So, for instance, take methadone. Methadone is 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 a medication designed to help people get off of um, 
their drug use and eventually live a prosperous life or a pro- what we call quote unquote a productive life. It's also good for pain. Though. It's, it's also- well, that's true too. Yeah. That is true too. It's good for pain. It's I mean it has other other uses to it as well. But <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> but keep in mind that everybody that who who goes into a, a methadone clinic is not necessarily there because they want to stop using. They're there because their life at one point got so unmanageable and living on the streets and having to hustle and having to beg and in some cases sell yourself and sell your soul to be able to 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 get drugs became so much it, it was so painful and so difficult that a person decided, you know what? If I go to a methadone clinic, I'm going to get medicated, but I could still get high because I can buy something else to add on to this. I can get a couple pills and boost up the the methadone and I'm still having some level of high without the the pain that I was suffering out there. And in a in a, you know, in a way that is harm reduction. This person found a way to still alter their feelings. I'm not saying that it's, you know, necessarily correct. You know, but the reality is this person wasn't ready to stop using they just didn't want to feel that um, that level of pain or or you know in, in discomfort or or um just shame in some cases that they figured I can do it this way better and yeah and there's a lot of people who went into methadone and did their program and got off and they're productive but it it's it's uh, the the when people are able to change something that they're doing that is completely painful and self-destructive and and do get less of that in the process that is harm reduction yeah and to add to that i'll say like even if you're not the person as you just mentioned who might be trying to you know still take some other substances on the top of their methadone if it's the difference between them taking an uncontrolled substance that you don't know what's in the substance and there's an opportunity to take something that is controlled and does require some type of uh, maintenance effort and some type of check-in with uh, both, you know, physical health doctors, but also mental health providers. That is a win. That's a win because folks don't go out in the street and have to buy, you know, stuff they don't know that they're taking and risk overdose. And that is harm reduction. Harm reduction is not changed the way you as an outsider see it. Harm reduction is, you know, giving folks the tools and materials to make change, you know, starting small and getting up to as large as they want to see that change happen. Um, Yeah. Keeping keeping people disease free, um, wound free, pain free until, you know, for as long as possible. and, And eventually they may make a conscious decision. I'm done. You know, we, we sometimes say, like we say with Narcan, we save people's lives until they're ready to save their own lives. You know, and in this case, we keep people healthy until they're, you know, ready or willing to keep themselves healthy and make a change. There are some people that may never do that, but at least we know that they are living, at least they're healthier than they would have been had they not had those, those interactions or those services. Yes. I will always tell people, I always tell people that, you know, I think what people don't get when it comes to drugs and the war on drugs is that the drugs are more of a symptom than the problem itself. 
people gravitate yeah. towards doing certain things, high, certain high risk behaviors, which include drug use and, and sex work and other high risk, you know, activities, because typically they're, you know, dealing with something else in their life. They're dealing with trauma, whether it's trauma that's currently happening or trauma that's in the past. They're dealing with uh, isolation um, from society, even if it's in their own mind that they're isolated. They might have plenty of people that would support them, but maybe in their own mind, they feel like they're always alone. Uh, it's around class. It's around racism. It's around poverty. Um, a lot of things that this country, unfortunately, has not worked to solve actively. We've had a war on yeah. drugs. Have we had a war on poverty yet? Because I don't see it. And until I don't think we had a war on drugs. I honestly think we had a war on people who use exactly. Drugs. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. You know because and, and and this is something that you know you 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 reminded me of something because people sometimes say yeah, but you know what? Some people choose to use and yeah, not everybody not everybody chose to use. Some people it was trauma and everything else that led them to that. But in the case in some cases where people chose to use, I always I, what I do is I took a step back and I had to look at it and I go okay. What are situations, you know, and I realized, why do people go on vacation to reduce the monotony, to change the, you know, the environment, to do something different, to relax? Well, people who are living below the poverty level, who don't make enough money, barely to pay their bills, can't afford to go on vacation. And some people take what I call a chemical vacation. They get a bag of weed on a Friday night with a 40 ounce of beer and they'll drink their beer, smoke their weed. And for that moment in that, in that time space, they're relaxing, they're enjoying themselves, they're having a moment. And sometimes that moment becomes every Friday, then it becomes every Friday, Saturday, and some years down the road, it's every day. And sometimes that chemical vacation becomes more expensive and more detrimental than if they had saved up all that money and took one vacation every five, 10 years. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have similar situations with higher up professionals who may come home on a Friday night and have a glass of wine because they're stressed. And 10 years down the line, they're having a bottle every single day. But, you know, it's, it's just something that we have to look at. What are, what are some of the reasons that people do these behaviors? And if, if you're, if we're talking about that, some people choose to use drugs and, 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 you know, and alcohol and substances, why are they doing it then? And if we realize that some people do it because they're stressed or bored or can't afford anything else, then part of the harm reduction in that situation would be teaching people how to meditate, teaching people how to relax, teaching people how to um, take walks and, and do other things to, to, you know, even exercise to, to feel some of these same um, results without having to take the, the chemicals. Because I got, you know, I always say there's nothing wrong with you having a drink if you're enjoying yourself, if you're, you know, but there is something wrong if you're drinking because you're depressed. Because alcohol increases depression and then the more depressed, the more you drink and it's this vicious cycle. So if, if from a, from somebody, from a standpoint of somebody who's trying to um, get people to change behaviors, then yeah, your your harm reduction would be teaching that individual how to handle stress and depression and everything else without a chemical. But in our, in our line of work where we're dealing with individuals who have already made a conscious decision to use, then it's okay, how do we teach this person to take care of themselves in the process 
of you know these behaviors so yeah excellent point and i think one point that i want to bring up uh which i was you know starting to mention is you know there's also i mean there's harm reduction on the ground level and working with individuals and groups and then there's harm reduction and practicing harm reduction for uh, a larger scale which is policy um, and we need more policies that are working to reduce the harm that's associated with the world that we live in right now. I mean, I'm thinking about it on a national scale right now. And, you know, obviously we will go into these type of, you know, uh, rants a little bit, you know, as we have this podcast. But right now you realize that on the federal government level, we're arguing about $15 an hour. $15 an hour for a job. Yep. We know that, at least from what they're saying, $15, million, $15 an hour can save about one, I think it was like 1.3 to 1.5 million people uh, from being in poverty. We have a country of about 330 million people. And we have folks who are supposed to be representing us saying that, they can't understand or want to approve of folks getting $15 an hour. But on the other end, did they have a hard time, you know, approving the tax cuts for the rich people, you know, on the other end of the spectrum? It's really mind boggling. But, you know, back to the point of it being harm reduction and risk reduction, it's harm reduction to make sure that people have enough money so they can have more money than just what their rent costs, more money to do fun things. I mean, you know, you mentioned like going out for a walk. You mentioned going out and like doing exercise. Although it's possible, certainly, it's hard to think about doing those things when you're in neighborhoods where, you know, it's an open air drug market. It's hard to do yeah. in rural areas where there's no services and there's no places for you to go and exercise, where you have to be creative and make up your own playground. You have to make up your own, you know, uh, you know, trail because things aren't paved out and they don't have nice signs. And, you know, you know you're afraid you might get, you know, an animal come out and, and attack you. I mean, I'm, you know, being a little facetious, but um I think certain people have more ability to have flexibility and part of it is due to money. And the fact that we're in a country right now in 2020, where the major argument around like a stimulus bill, mind you, during a pandemic uh, being like, oh, but we don't want to give, you know, the people who are doing the worst and are on an entry level job a baseline of $15 an hour. Um, the fact that we're living in a country that has the high of highs, but has the low of lows unnecessarily speaks to the fact that there are just some folks who, you know, like you said earlier, have a war on people, a war on the poor. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, deafening uh, how, you know, ridiculous, uh, you know, this is and why the work that, you know, we do in real life, but also hopefully the work that we'll do on this podcast to educate and I think keep people more aware of these hypocrisies uh, is so important. Yep. Yeah. And I, I just want to, you know, moving it, moving it along, I wanted to, to have a, co a conversation on, on, 
what truly what truly inspires or or most people see as harm reduction, which is when we're talking about syringe exchange programs and some of the services that have been created to specifically help individuals who are suffering from substance abuse disorder, you know, um, it, it's something that, let me just say that it was prior to this coming into existence, basically people were on their own, you know, um, in the 19, in the, in, in the mid 1990s, I did a piece with, uh, with Judy Porter, who, you know, and, um, and we collected, we did a, she did a study. I helped collect the data on why injection drug users did not get medical insurance or get, or barely got medical care. And it was interesting to find how many people who were actively using did not have insurance. So they were accessing the ER, the emergency rooms as their primary care provider. But as a result of what we were seeing, the spread of HIV, you know, endocarditis, um, abscesses, like beyond, I have never, like, I have not seen in years some of the things that we used to see in the 90s, which is, which it's in part to the fact, to the fact that harm reduction was, was put into place. But, you know, there was a necessity to intervene. And when I first got involved with syringe exchange, you know, my question was like, we're doing what? We're giving needles to who? Why would we give people needles? And, you know, it was explained to me. These are the things that are happening. This is what, and we'll get more in, in detail, you know, later on. But it was something that I realized there was no other option. Because like you said, it's not something you can, the, the Nancy Reagan era of just say no never worked. So you couldn't just tell people, stop that. Don't do that anymore. Because it doesn't, it's not that simple. But implementing something like syringe exchange made a huge difference in the lives of a lot of people. And we've had the luxury, we've had the, you know, the, the misfortune and we've had the luxury. We've had the misfortune that we've seen a lot of people succumb to their drug use and their, their, their substance abuse disorder and not survive and not make it. But we've also had the luxury to see people who've gone from like what people call the bottom of society to becoming successful people who are working and who are homeowners. And, and, you know, so, and it, it all came about because somebody took the time to implement harm reduction and remind these people, you are human beings too. You are part of this, uh, this society, this community, you matter. Even though you sometimes feel you don't, you matter. You know, so, but I don't know if you want to touch some more on, on just your experience with syringe exchange and, and. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, syringe services, I think to the novice, to the outside looking in may feel like enabling, but it definitely is not mm -hmm. enabling. It's accepting the fact that people are already using syringes or doing other risky behaviors and saying, it doesn't mean it has to be a death sentence. And like I've mentioned a couple of times earlier, not only is it good for you, but it's good for all of us. You don't have to be someone personally affected by, you know, drugs and, you know, 
sex work and poverty to understand that we're all connected with each other. And that person could be my brother, sister, cousin, best friend, you know, grandfather, uncle, uh, you know, every, you know, term that you use uh, with someone that's either a blood relation or a term of endearment. Um, it's been very impactful to have folks sometimes, you know, treading gray water, you know, I mean, you have, you know, what's supposed to happen and you have, you have what really happens. Uh, It's very key that you have people, especially those folks who started, you know, doing syringe services when it was not, you know, popular, when it wasn't what many people, like you said yourself, sexy, uh, wasn't, wasn't the right (laughs) thing to do, quote unquote, understanding that we had no choice. We have no choice. It's either we let people continuously use, uh, reuse dirty syringes and face wound care concerns. We let them share with each other and contract HIV. uh, Or we, you know, go, you know, pennies and dimes to the dollar, give them the supplies that we need to do them to do things as safe as possible. We provide education and we also uh, provide surrounding supports. You know, I mean, quickly uh, after the syringe service program, when you're going out on the streets and you're doing, you know, mobile outreach, you know, whether it was out of people's cars or it was out of a truck and you went to certain locations consistently, you realize that a lot of folks you're dealing with are dealing with wound care issues. They're dealing with upper respiratory effects. They're dealing with other medical concerns. What came quickly, at least in Philadelphia right after, was understanding that there was a need for medical care. There was a need for, you know, know, people, you know, medical professionals to be there on the scenes, but then also help them get connected to care. I ran and, you know, I guess technically have run acute medical care clinics for over a decade. One of the things that we definitely dealt with in that process that was harm reduction was helping people get insurance. And before it was helping them get insurance by, you know, trying to determine what a disability was because, you know, in Pennsylvania, you had to have a disability to receive medical coverage unless you had private insurance. Now, thanks to the Affordability Care Act, it's more around having an income qualification. But before we used to have to have doctors that were willing to tease out this over the surface, what was the underlying concerns and causes for why the people were in the predicament they were in. And we had doctors that were more than willing to dig deeper. Um, You know, we had doctors, you know, that would ask the person, what, you know, why do you need insurance? And there might have been someone who, or many people who said, well, I don't think I don't have a disability. I'm fine. You know, everything's good with me. But then when you dig deeper and deeper into like what they're doing and why they're doing it and where they're coming from and what their life story is, you can pull out one of many diagnoses that back in the day would allow you to get that medical coverage. And that medical coverage is a gateway for them getting primary care. It's a gateway for them getting specialty care. It's a gateway for them getting ongoing medical and mental health services that they didn't have unless you were able to tease that out in some cases. I mean, some, you know, individuals definitely had, and you could see a mile away, both medical and mental health concerns that definitely made them candidates for insurance. But 
there are also other folks where you did have to, you know, kind of dig deep and you had to have, you know, staff on the medical side that had it, uh, had, you know, the ability and the willingness to put, you know, their documentation on the line. And you also on the streets had to have individuals like yourself and other people, Judy Porter and so many others from back in the day that uh, also, you know, at sometimes even risk them getting locked up and fined to, you know, do what was right by people when it wasn't a popular thing to do. And I think the results uh, have been tremendous, not just here in Philadelphia, but in every place it's been implemented. Uh, it's things yeah. that have been, you know, attributed uh, in, you know, newspapers and, and public health, you know, journals and um, research studies all over the country, all over the world. Harm reduction has been very much uh, one of the best interventions that's ever come around in the medical and the social service community. Uh, and it's something that needs to be implemented so many other places um, and in so many yeah. different you know, types of programming. Uh, a meet people where they are uh, format, uh, an open door policy when it comes to how we treat people, uh, understanding that it's not just about what I think you should be doing or how I feel about what you're doing, but it's about your wellness and your self-determination and empowerment has been paramount to the work that's been done. And if we, like I said, once again, put it in the context of what everyone does on a daily basis as far as risk reduction and harm reduction, uh, we know that it just makes total sense. So instead of being uh, against it, uh, for moral reasons or because, you know, the substances are, you know, illegal. Uh, let's just think about, well, if they're illegal, how come people have access to it? I mean, if you want to go there, let's just go there. And you say, well, okay, if they're here, I still have to account for them and help people who are having to deal with them. And that's harm reduction. Um, you mentioned, yeah, and yeah I, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, it, it comes back to like I was saying earlier with the whole smoking, you know, we know that smoking cigarettes is bad for you. Yet people minimize it's legal. the cigarette smoking. It's legal, Elvis, but it's legal, Elvis. No, I, yes, I, I, I agree with you. But what I'm saying is that, you know, people minimize the behavior and the effect because just like it, it and it happens, it even happens within the communities that we serve where somebody who's snorting might look at somebody who's injecting and go, wow, that dude is messed up. I'm glad I'm not living like that. But they're using the same substance. They're just, just using it differently. And, you know, ironically enough, even within the realms of, of, of smoking, the, the world of, of tobacco, you know, there's been some incidences where things had to change. I remember my father used to send me to the store in the 70s to buy a pack of cigarettes, and there was no problem them giving me cigarettes and to take home. And then towards the 80s, they were like, wait, you can't have children buying cigarettes because that could encourage them to smoke or it could, they could, you know, bypass it and blah, blah, blah. So then they made it a law that you had to be 18 to be able to purchase it. In some places now they want to take it to 21 or they've done it to 21. <clears throat> and they're, you know, they've put some things into place as harm reduction, like the labels on the on the packs that you, didn't used to be there from the Surgeon General, you know, but still people don't look at it. Some people don't look at it like it's a big deal. And I say some because there are some companies, for instance, like even in New Jersey, 
they will not hire you if you smoke because they take they say that people who smoke take more breaks than everybody else and they're called out sick more often and they're at doctors more often so you know some people have taken a view of it and seen it as a problem but the majority they just well they smoke so what but when it comes to this you know it's like like i said earlier there there hasn't been a war on drugs there's been a war on people who use drugs and they've criminalized the disease of addiction you know and one of the things that we have to remind people is these individuals a lot of them are suffering from so many other things that contributed to their drug use that you know we have to look at that and how do we help this individual and not look at them like they're the scum of the earth or they're they're criminals you know and people like you said because it's illegal people will say but they are criminals they're using drugs no they are individuals in a messed up situation for whatever the reason whether it was trauma related whether it was stress related whether it was poverty related you know have gotten into this situation we need to make it a point to be able to reach out to those individuals and remind them that they are still part of our society like i said earlier and that they matter you know and once we start to look at people as people and not as a behavior or as a crime then only then and only then can you actually help those individuals to make some changes or live at least better yeah definitely elvis and when you mentioned the cigarettes uh after my illegality uh you know you know jump out um it reminded me of even how cigarettes are you know dealt with differently in different countries have you ever been to a european country and seeing how they advertise cigarettes? No, I used to do a piece here when I taught in the schools, how they used to advertise cigarette smoking here. Right. But I've not seen how it's advertised over there now. Well, first off, it's not advertised as regularly as it is over here. I mean, first off, you can't get a pack of cigarettes in most pharmacies in the country. A pharmacy is for medication. It's not for getting cigarettes and a whole bunch of other supermarket-like items, uh, particularly an item like cigarettes that can and has shown can kill you. So if you go to like yeah. a UK pharmacy, you're not going to see a front section that has cigarettes. And I'll give credit, even a place like CVS in America has started to not have uh, or d doesn't have cigarettes uh, in, yeah, in their front counters like they used to with all the other tobacco products because it was you know, uh, a contradiction on trying to be a place of health while pushing poison to, you know, uh, you know, the people right as they are, you know, checking out. Now you can, you know, say something about the soda and all the other sweet, you know, sweets and salty stuff that they have to kind of make it like a one-stop shop for people. But, you know, that that's a, another conversation. Um, but mm -hmm. when we're talking about cigarettes, if you go to Europe, like I remember going to uh, Portugal for the International Harm Reduction Conference, and I've been other places, like even though cigarettes are legal, they will let you know clearly what cigarettes uh, can cause. They have big yeah. pictures on the back of it with like your lungs and your heart and and, and <laughs> the fact that, you know, this is how your lungs are going to look if you keep on smoking. This is how your your liver, not liver, this is you know, what your heart is going to 
you know, do if you keep on smoking? Like, this is what, I mean, and maybe it hasn't gone this far, but the relationship between pregnancy and smoking will be mentioned on the back. So they'll give you the the front label with the type of cigarette it is, but on the back, there's like a big, typically graphic in words or picture, um, you know, example of why this isn't something you want to do for a long period of time and that, you know, it's not good for your health at all. In America, we have it typically on the spine, like on the side of it, and there's no major pictures. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that scare tactics are necessarily going to get people to do anything. I mean, I looked at the pack and like said, wow, put it down. And I would, you know, see other people continuing to smoke. It wasn't a big deal for them, but it was on full blast what this could actually do. Whereas in America, because it's it's legal and because there are, you know, obviously major corporations that are making these cigarettes and less political pushback from the government around it. They're not made to put those, that type of labeling on their 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 product. Um, but, I, but I have to say I have to interrupt you for a second because I have to say that, you know, they have made some some and, I, and again, it fits into the harm reduction. You know, they've made some strides and some changes because in the 60s, you know, I have ads that I used to when I was teaching in the schools about anti-smoking and teaching kids about the dangers of smoking, where you used to get a pack of a a carton of cigarettes that had like a holiday. It was almost like a Christmas card gift. And Ronald Reagan, who was an actor at the time, you know, was advertising, send your friends a pack of this brand of cigarettes. For Christmas, and I used to, some of the ads would say, you know, when you get home after a long day's work, relax with and smoke this. You know, when we got to, I want to say the '90s and into 2000, they started a lot of things had changed because even they took all. There used to be commercials on TV for smoking. Mm-hmm. You know, selling cigarettes, all that got removed. The Marlboro Man. TV. Yeah, the Marlboro the camel, Man was the gone. Camel, camel was yeah. gone. Yeah. So they've made they've made some changes, you know, but the issue, the issue in all is that um, I think that it was more the the people around the companies forced them to make some changes, not the companies themselves. Yeah, lawsuits. And, too. Yeah. And, and I also want to touch on something that you mentioned, because you reminded me that. In the in the 1700s and 1800s, I believe it's 1800s. You could buy cocaine at a pharmacy. Oh, my dad! You could. My go dad in. had Coca Cola syrup that he held on to, and back in the day, Coca Cola syrup had cocaine. That's why it's called Coca Cola. Yeah, that's how it got its right. name. Because yeah. it had a that's numbing effect. I mean, it did what cocaine did. You know, it wasn't like you know a full bore, you know, strength of cocaine. But yeah, cocaine syrup for like coughs and colds was a real thing that was in there. And then all of a sudden they were like, wait a minute, like we can't, you know, on the one hand, push this product that has caused this, but also put it in medications that are supposed to help people, um, which. Coca-Cola was the first energy. Drink. Right. Yeah. You know, but they, they realized, you know, at one point they said, okay, this isn't, this is causing more problems than, than anything else. And they banned it again. You know, but at one point, cocaine was legal. 
So I think that traditionally, you know, we have certain things that we put into place because we think they're good for us and later find out otherwise. And then some of the laws start to change. But we have certain things that have been pushed, like pain management medications, who obviously people knew were not good if in, a, in large amounts or if abused, that still got pushed. And now people are punished for being dependent on the same medications that got pushed. Yeah, and there was there's been some major you know? settlements that have happened in the last couple of years with like Purdue <laughs> and other pharma companies who definitely went out and said that there was no addictive uh addictive qualities with their medication and that it didn't cause any harm and now you find out later on as you know tens of thousands if not millions of people have become uh you know regular users or addicted if you want to say to these medications a we were wrong and they're being made to you know pay out billions of dollars but where the billions of dollars goes is another another subject for another uh another time um yeah just moving on because uh, we talked about the syringe service program or syringe exchange program and, and you know, why it's happening and what the benefits are. Um, but there are also some things that, you know, have happened a little bit more recently. Um, and, and just to name a couple, uh, you know, uh, public restrooms um, and hand washing yeah. stations. Um, in Kensington, there was a major health outbreak of hepatitis A because, you know, folks didn't have access to hand washing stations and public restrooms. Uh, and there was a lot of pushback initially. Um, and that's something we'll talk about as far as a not in my backyard on another show coming up soon. Uh, but uh, due to the epidemic of, you know, folks contracting hep A in uh, that area and other areas, public restrooms are put up and it's helped dramatically, you know, push down the rates of hep A in that neighborhood, along with, you know, vaccinating people uh, for hepatitis A. Um, And that's another example of, you know, a public health harm reduction based strategy that was implemented um, out of a need um, when honestly there should have been and there should be uh, places for people to wash their hands and go to the bathroom in public places, um, you know, in general. You should not have to pay, uh, you know, to use a restaurant or, or, you know, grab a soda before you use a bathroom, especially in areas that, you know, uh, have a major homelessness problem. A, I think there should be places for folks to actually live, you know, where they can use the public, you know, facilities. But I think another step would be to actually, as many other places around the country and the world uh, are starting to do or already have done and have done for a long time, actually have places for folks to regularly use a bathroom, whether it costs a quarter or a nickel or a dime to go in and use these bathrooms. So it's not a question of I have to go to the bathroom and I have to choose uh, on doing it on myself or doing it in between these two cars. Thoughts, Elvis? Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I just want to, you know, in, in, in for the sake of time, you know, I want to make sure that our listeners understand we are going to talk a little more in depth about these topics and the impacts that they've had and the, you know, the pros and the cons in, in our, in our next show. And I, I hope you guys join us for that. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, once again, it was a situation where because people didn't have basic necessities, water, clean, just soap and water, you know, access to soap and water and bathrooms, which is 
a given right to everybody and anybody. You know, and we'll talk about also the fact that, for instance, uh, McPherson has two bathrooms underground. They literally buried the two bathrooms, you know, that could have been used for public access. And instead, they just filled them in. They're literally still there. But, and we'll talk more detail about that in the next show as well. But I just, you know, yeah, this was a situation that could have been prevented. But even so, as a result of people responding with harm reduction um, methods of giving people bathrooms and soap and water and vaccinations and whatnot, we were able to curb within a couple of months a huge outbreak of hepatitis A. You know, and again, we'll talk about that in the next show and some of the conflicts that we faced and some of the the, the obstacles that we had to um, go um, go over just to be able to provide somebody something as simple as a bathroom or soap and water. So I hope they join us for the next show. Yeah, definitely hope everyone joins us for the next show. You know, this is what this is about. This is what this podcast is about. It's about those hard conversations. It's about thinking out of the box. It's about thinking on the harm reductionist lens, uh, you know, whether it's around, you know, drug use and sex work and, and people living in poverty, or it's about some things that are more universal to many and things that, you know, we want to start to br build a bridge towards relating uh, people to. Absolutely. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with uh, everyone uh, via the THC uh, podcast. Uh, and we look forward to continuing to speak with you uh, as we move forward uh, with this effort. Yep. So on behalf of myself, Clayton Ruley. And Elvis Rosado. We want to thank you guys for listening to those hard conversations, aka the THC podcast. Uh, please continue to listen and we'll see you very soon. Stay safe, folks. Peace. Thanks for listening to THC. Follow us on Facebook at Those Hard Conversations. Or visit our website at thosehardconversations.com.